Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. Today we are talking about what it means to bear the burden of emotional labor. Hmm. This is work that we know falls disproportionately to women, and of course, it's unpaid work. Mm-hmm. I thought before we got started, we could talk a little bit about what we mean by emotional labor, because it means a lot of different things to different people, and it depends on the context we're talking about. Yep. When we're talking about the workplace, emotional labor includes things like adjusting the expressions of your emotions to benefit a colleague or a client in a positive way. And a good example of this is, think of service with a smile, Mm -hmm. which we expect mostly from women. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about relationships, emotional labor can mean engaging in intense conversations with friends and loved ones, listening to their problems, being in charge of people when they come to visit and hosting them, communicating with children's teachers and doctors about their care, and the list goes on and on and on from there. I get exhausted just talking about that. So, Ashley, what are your thoughts about emotional labor? So emotional labor is really interesting to me because it's one of those things that I have experienced my whole adult life, but I never had a name for it. I didn't know there was a name for it um, until recently. So I first learned about the concept emotional labor last summer. Um, There was kind of this internet upheaval about it, at least um, on the blogs and things that I read. Um, You might be familiar with the site Metafilter. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, For those who don't know, it's a community where people can blog and ask questions and participate in conversations, kind of like Reddit. So last summer, somebody on Metafilter shared an article about emotional labor, and then they asked people to chime in with their own experiences of emotional labor or maybe their definitions of emotional labor. And the comments just went crazy. There were hundreds of comments. And eventually, there were so many people, and it was mostly women, but not exclusively women. There were so many people sharing their stories about performing emotional labor that the original author of the post gathered all the comments together and organized them into this giant PDF. And um, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's fascinating. And you can also Google like meta filter emotional labor and this will this is the first thing that will come up. So, one commenter gave this definition which is probably the one that I related to the most. It's the closest one to my experience. So, this is what they said. I often talk about emotional labor as being the work of caring. It's not just being caring. It's that thing where someone says, "I'll clean if you just tell me what to clean." because they don't want to do the mental work of figuring it out. And figuring it out, that mental work, that's the emotional labor. So it's caring about all the moving parts required to feed the family at dinner. It's caring about social management. It's when you notice that something around the house needs to be done. It's a substantial amount of overhead, having to care about everything. It ought to be a shared burden, but half the planet is socialized to trick other people into doing more of the work. So, Katie, does that sound like emotional labor to you? (laughs) That sounds exactly right. I really identify with that comment. And around the time that you probably discovered this Metafilter thread, 
I was looking at something. It was a feminist cartoon about the mental load, which is very similar to and connected with emotional labor. Mm -hmm. The concept that I have to hold in my head all of these pieces of data and information about birthdays, appointments, Mm -hmm. relationships, the house, the car, the kid, the dog. It's really exhausting and it's a burden that I don't ever set down and it interferes with my ability to remain focused on tasks because I'm constantly thinking of things. Um, It can make it hard to sleep at night if I'm constantly making lists. I actually keep little note cards by my bedside table with a pen because inevitably something will come up as I'm trying to fall asleep. And Mm -hmm. it's really exhausting, even though it's not very visible. It's internal, but it still takes a huge energy amount of energy to withhold, like to sustain that over time. So the mental load and emotional labor are definitely connected. When I think about emotional labor and what's so difficult about it, there's two main areas that I struggle with, and one's related to work and one's related to relationships. So I'll start with the work one. Uh, I'm a small business owner, you know this, and I do consulting for nonprofits and churches and others, and I can't tell you the number of times I've had somebody email me or call me or just pull me aside and ask to take me to lunch or coffee to quote-unquote pick my brain. And what they really want is for me to give my expertise away for free or Mm -hmm. for a $3 coffee, you know, so that they can turn around and use that to inform their paid work. These are folks who are in full-time positions at jobs, you know, that give them benefits, presumably, but they want me to come in and supplement their paid work by giving away my information and my expertise for free. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and it's one thing to ask me, hey, can you connect me to someone in your network? Um, I don't want to discourage people from reaching out to me for something like that because I like to help people. But to ask me to do unpaid work as a favor to you because of the relationship that we have and when you have no intention of hiring me down the line, that's really, really hard for me to take. And I imagine that this happens more to women than it does to men. That's just a guess. Um, So that's one. The other area is around taking care of my daughter. And I'll say in thinking about emotional labor and actually reading through that Metafilter PDF, my husband and I do a pretty good job in terms of emotional labor. And we have something that feels pretty equitable to me. Um, and we do that with our with juggling childcare responsibilities too. But it's a real struggle to get other people to see us as equal parents because our culture is so biased towards mother. So mm-hmm. for example, her, her daycare, if there's something that pops up, will always contact me first. If there's an issue at school, always, always will call me first. And they'll often leave him completely off of emails that they send me. So when I reply, I always copy him on there and say, can you please make sure you include my husband on these exchanges? But mm-hmm. no matter how many times it just never sinks in. Uh, And we also have the same issue with our pediatrician's office. We always go, we try to always go together to the pediatrician um, if we can, if we can swing it, but they won't, uh, the doctor won't make as much eye contact with Matt as they do with me when they're talking about our daughter and her care. Um, This really annoys both of us for different reasons. He feels invalidated as a parent and I feel the burden of holding the information and dealing with the logistics. So it's, it's really a, a difficult thing, even when you figure it out within your own like small ecosystem, when you go out and interact more broadly with the culture, you're going to bump up against these gender roles. 
Yeah. That's the thing about the emotional labor burden to me. Um, it's this really subtle, hard to explain phenomenon, I guess, that society has um, to keep us in those gender roles. Because when you try to explain emotional labor to somebody else um, that maybe doesn't experience it in the same way or doesn't experience it at all, they can kind of come back at you and say that you're making it up or Mm. you're taking it on by choice. Um, That if you just didn't care as much, it wouldn't feel like such a burden. And um, that to me is the most maybe insidious part of the, the emotional labor struggle. And that's reflected in my biggest experience um, with emotional labor or one where it's just really clear to me. Um, it happens at Christmas time. And I feel like this is probably something that a lot of women can relate to. I have a big family where gift giving is the norm. And I have around um, every year, 25 people or so, depending on who's in town, to buy gifts for between my family, my extended family, my husband's family. Oh, that's a lot of gifts to buy. It's ridiculous. And it's not just the gift giving is like a catch-all for the shopping the thinking of what people would like, uh, mm-hmm. budgeting for the gifts, wrapping, making sure it looks nice, mailing yeah. it if it's to folks out of town. And that's that's all the lead up to Christmas. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we actually have, between the two of us, we have five families, all within about a two-hour drive of us, that all expect us to be there at their Christmas dinner, their festivities, and we just cannot physically be in all these places at once. We've tried. It's impossible. So somebody's always disappointed. Um, and we always have to bring a dish, you know? Oh, gosh. So we're not, we're not just <laughs> going to their houses to hang out. We're bringing a dish. So on top of that, there's all the little things that go with Christmas, like putting up a tree, sending cards, baking, going to holiday parties, going to your church activities, all that stuff. And we don't even have kids. So every year around Thanksgiving, I start to, well, earlier than Thanksgiving, I start to dread the holidays. And mm. I started calling it a couple years ago, the Christmas gauntlet, because that's what it feels like. <laughs> and last year... I had a meltdown about a week before Christmas because um, a last-minute thing got added to my to-do list, and this, like, very precarious list of things I had to do just, like, crumbled. (laughs) And I was completely stressed out, and my husband was bewildered. He had no idea why Christmas bothers me so much and why I start to dread it. And so I sat down, and I literally typed up a spreadsheet of every task that has to be completed, every person we have to buy a gift for, every like deadline that all of this stuff has to happen by. And I showed it to him. And he took one look at it and was like, oh, I had no idea. Okay. (laughs) And thankfully, he's the kind of guy that wanted to help. So we sat down with the list together. We took some things off the list. This year, I'm not putting up a Christmas tree. (laughs) Like, that can just go. 
Um, we took some things off the list. We divided up some jobs. And um, now he's got a lot more understanding of what goes on during the holidays and why it bothers me so much. But this is the part that has, to me, really underscores this idea of emotional labor. So his first response when he saw this spreadsheet, he looked at me, he goes, so what if we just didn't do any of this stuff? And he's not big on holidays, celebrations. It's not that important to him. Um, so he looks at this list and he's like, this is all optional. Why are we doing any of this? And he doesn't care about any of this list getting done because he doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. I don't do this stuff because it's fun for me, because I enjoy it. Some of it I enjoy, but the, the bulk of it is just work. I do it because I have families who expect it and who enjoy it. And I want to please them. I care about pleasing them. I was socialized to care about pleasing my family where he wasn't so much. And that is the biggest difference to me about what is the emotional labor aspect of it. Um, because on the one hand, it's a to-do to list and everybody's got a to-do list. But um, on the other hand, if we didn't do any of that stuff, if we didn't buy gifts for all our family, he's not the one that would get blamed for it or get judged for it it would be me and I care about that and I care about making everybody around me happy so that to me is like when I think about emo the emotional labor the mental load it's that work of caring that is the the biggest difference oh yeah I mean we well we're talking about the cost of carrying emotional labor, but there's mm -hmm. a cost to setting it down and not participating that you yes. just named at the end. And again, those costs generally are going to be felt by women in terms of how they're perceived in their families or in their communities mm -hmm. um, and how they'll be judged. And, and there's a cost there with the blowback that you get by not participating in what is expected of you and I mean, maybe you make the decision, hey, I'm not going to do it anymore, but there will be a backlash that will also have a cost. Um, mm -hmm. So the other part of her story that struck me is just that, one, having to have an emotional breakdown for things to change. I mean, yep. that that is has a cost, too. It's really, it's really to get to the point where you're just so overwhelmed that you have to have this kind of like rock bottom moment for... Mm -hmm. your partner or family to understand. I've definitely had those situations in other contexts where I felt like that was the turning point. But again, I don't like feeling that way. It depletes me of emotional energy to feel that way. But also that your husband said, oh, I didn't have any idea that you were doing this. And it's that work that you're doing that's invisible and thankless that for mm -hmm. me is what I resent the most because I feel like it has mm -hmm. to get done and yet it's not acknowledged or seen. Or as you were saying before, sometimes people are trying to tell you it doesn't even exist at all. Isn't that gaslighting or something? Yes, it's totally gaslighting. So it's just so yeah. complex. Or it's being told that the things you care about are frivolous. Like that, right. that this stuff doesn't need to get done. Why are you worrying about it so much? And it's trying to... It's trying to convey that it may not be important to you, but it's important to other people and therefore important to me. And, um, yeah, that is, 
I really appreciate that you pointed out that that we have to get to that breaking point before we can have these conversations. It's really unfortunate sometimes. There's also a connection back to what we talked about last week around women's relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. And in part, women have stronger relationships and networks because they participate in emotional labor. This is the stuff that holds us together as community is caring for people and asking them how they're doing and, and showing them love through different acts of service, like making, making a dish at Christmas time or whatever holiday. So it is critical work. I think we don't want to underplay that this work is really important, but you also talked about the socialization piece and there's all this mythology that Mm -hmm. this emotional labor is natural for women to take on. Mm -hmm. Um, People will say, well, women just have higher emotional intelligence or they're born nurturing or they're just better at remembering this stuff. And these patterns of behavior are absolutely learned and passed down through the way that we're socialized in our families and in our communities. And I will say to his credit, my husband was really socialized in a different kind of household where his mom and dad took on stuff in a much more equitable way. And so when it comes to holidays and things like we kind of split it and go, okay, you take care of your family. I take care of my family. And like, that's just how it's always been. So I, I guess I am realizing again, how fortunate I am that my husband was cultured in a different way. And so it's definitely not about like what sex you're assigned at birth, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And related to that, I was thinking about how, trans women have to hold a lot of emotional labor too. Mm -hmm. Um, Think about how they're expected to answer questions about their transitions and their bodies. And that's a huge emotional toll too that they're holding. So again, this is not about the sex that you're assigned at birth. This is all about how we're cultured as people who identify as female. Yeah. And we're expected to give that emotional energy to make other people comfortable, to make other people happy, and to keep the peace. Oh, yeah. And I wonder what the world would look like if um, women weren't the bearers of so much emotional labor. I wonder what we could get done with all of our free time. If our, <laughs> if our mental energy could go somewhere else, like running for office maybe, or leading a company as CEO, I think... It really benefits patriarchy for us to not question these roles and to not um, explore better and more equitable ways of dividing up labor, including emotional labor. You're so right, because again, this work is critical. I think people understand that this work has to happen, Mm -hmm. but men don't want to participate. So it benefits the patriarchy if women can just continue to do that work. Mm -hmm. And I think that that definitely happens in the faith community as well. So when you think about emotional labor, what comes to mind within the context of the church? So for me, I think of one of the busiest women in the Bible, uh, the Proverbs 31 woman. Are you familiar with this? Yes, I am. You know the woman I'm talking about. (laughs) She's more precious than rubies. Um, because she works with her hands. She brings food from afar. She gets up in the middle of the night to prepare food for her family. She knows how to buy a farm and how to run a vineyard. She takes care (laughs) of the poor. And this part that I think is especially relevant to emotional labor. 
She is clothed in strength and dignity. She laughs at the future. She speaks with wisdom and she watches over the affairs of her household. I read the virtuous woman, Proverbs 31 woman, and I'm exhausted. And it sounds a lot like what we've been talking about this episode. And the thing that gets me is where is the virtuous woman's husband? (laughs) He is hanging out at the city gate with the elders, making laws, being respected. (laughs) Oh, it's so true. It is. And what's interesting is that many denominations lift up this passage as the definition of what it means to be a good woman, even so far as calling it being a biblical woman. If you have read... um, any of Rachel Held Evans' work. I love uh, her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. It's very fun. Mm-hmm. She really takes on this uh, this virtuous woman passage and the definition of womanhood that's presented in the Bible. And um, so it's a fun read. I recommend it. Um, but I have a p- few problems with how we use this passage to define womanhood. And the first is that it's just, I mean, on the on the surface, it's just this impossible laundry list of, of standards that are impossible to live up to. Um, it, I feel like it really sets us up for failure if we're holding ourselves to, to the virtuous woman standard. But the thing that really bugs me is why is this list just for women? Women are asked every day. We read scripture and we're asked to identify with stories about men, right? We're supposed mm-hmm. to read the Bible and read stories that feature Jesus and Moses and the prophets and the disciples pretty much all men, and we're supposed to identify with them and apply their lessons to our lives. Yet this passage specifically references the virtuous woman, which means that it's a passage just for women, and men can skip that part and move on. (laughs) And I think that all humans can strive to be the kind of person that's described in Proverbs 31, not just women, but we don't apply it that way in our churches. We, we say that this is a, this is a passage for women. This is what women should strive to be. And, um, I just really have a problem with that. And I feel like it just reinforces all of, all of this emotional labor stuff, gender role stuff that we've been talking about, um, on pretty much every episode. Um, but what do you think about it? I have never thought about that passage in this way, but I think it's, I think it's spot on and it's something I want to talk more about with you and maybe we could write something together about this if someone hasn't already done that because that would be fun. It's such a good point. I mean, I think anytime that there's a word to a woman that's not about like you need to not speak up in church or um, you need to just have kids to deal with the original sin. I'm like, oh, there's something specifically to women. Let's celebrate that. But what you're describing now really makes sense to me. It's kind of like asking, asking women to be everything, to do everything, um, and to strive for that. So it's really problematic and I never thought of it that way before. (laughs) So thank you for sharing that interpretation with me. I think it's really, it's really right. I was thinking of the story of Mary and Martha, and this is one of the chapters I'm writing about in my book, Women Rise Up. But when I was growing up, I remember someone talking about a book called Having a Martha's Heart in a Mary's World. I don't know if you ever heard of this book. It really really wasn't targeted for our age group. It was more for 
I would say women with, with families. I do feel like maybe um, my mom has talked about it now that you mention it. Okay. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know the, the story, there's a gospel story. Mary and Martha are sisters. Martha is wor- working and Mary, her sister is sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening to him talk. And so at some point Martha says, Hey Jesus, could you tell Mary to come help me? And he says, Mary's <laughs> chosen the better thing. Like you do all of this work, but Mary's chosen, chosen the, I don't think he even says better. It's like the good thing. So it's interpreted to mean that Martha is in the kitchen working, which is not in the Bible, by the way. This is not, she probably was not doing domestic work because they would have had servants, but it's interpreted that Martha's in the kitchen and Mary's doing the spiritual thing. And so this book, Having a Martha's Heart in a Mary's World, is basically reinforcing Proverbs 31. Hey, women, you need to do all these great things in your household, do all the domestic stuff, but also have this enlightened spiritual side to yourself. You need to be able to do both things at the same time. Uh, and we're ex- definitely expected to do this in churches because women are the ones providing childcare, mm-hmm. setting up for funerals, baking the communion bread, putting the flowers up on the altar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not often given the platform for leadership in the church beyond this domestic work. And again, it's work that is often invisible. Invisible and vital. Those are the things that people go to church for, right? That community, that comfort, the having their really basic human needs met in the form of food and sitting with them in their grief. And Mm -hmm. those things are often performed by women. And then the men in leadership positions get the credit um, for filling the pews. Yeah. That's right. That's rough. That's right. (laughs) It's rough. Well, this might be part one of this conversation. I I imagine we'll pick this up again some other time. So stay tuned, folks. Uh, Because emotional labor is a big topic and we just scratched the surface. But it's time to turn to what we're reading and what we're listening to. Ashley, what are you reading right now? I'm very excited about this one. So I am making my way through the Read Harder Challenge. And yay! yay! And I'm I'm getting down to the wire. I have a lot of a lot of blanks to fill, so I'm trying to find some books that double up. So this book was a book about war and a book that is set 5,000 miles away from my location. So I just finished All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. And this was recommended to me by my friend Madeline, who is a podcast listener. Yay. Uh, Yay. Friend of the pod. Yeah, friend of the pod. So All the Light We Cannot See was set during World War II. And the main characters are two children who grow into adults during the war. One is a blind French girl who lives in Paris, and one is a German orphan boy who's drafted into the Nazi army. And it's written in a really cool way. Their stories are interwoven. Um, You kind of read a chapter about her and then a chapter about him all throughout the book until they finally start to come together. And um, I couldn't put it down. I, I recommend it as a really engaging, engrossing read. But I was also in the middle of reading it when the Charlottesville neo-Nazi rally took place. Mm. And it was really challenging. Um, Reading this book at that time was really challenging. There was a scene in the book where the German boy is at this Nazi um, training academy. And they're asked, all all the students are asked to participate in this really violent ritual. And one of his friends refuses to participate, and because he refuses, he's uh, beaten and tortured by the other students. And um, the main character uh, kind of stands by and lets it happen and Mm. doesn't come to his defense and doesn't speak up. And it goes on to 
to be, I don't want to give too much away, but it goes on to, to have some really bad consequences uh, throughout the book. And I found this to be a really great reminder of the responsibilities that we have as bystanders to violence and persecution mm-hmm. when we see it. Mm-hmm. And um, if anyone listening ever has the opportunity to go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., It's a really powerful museum, and there is an exhibit there that I saw a few years ago that really stayed with me. It's called Some Were Neighbors, and um, it's an exhibit that's all about the, you know, when we think about World War II, we think a lot about the, the Nazis, but there were a lot of ordinary, everyday Germans that were not Nazis, but they chose not to act against the Nazi regime for all kinds of personal reasons. Um, and you might look at them and think they were good reasons, you know, all the same reasons that we have now not to participate Mm -hmm. in opposition to violence and oppression. Um, you know, fear for our own safety and our family's safety. Maybe we just don't really care. We've got other things on our minds, peer pressure. And this exhibit does a great job of showing how just not speaking up makes us complicit and even collaborators um, in, in, in this case and the atrocities of the Holocaust. And I just see a lot of echoes of that happening today. And so I thought the book was really, um, the book is good in and of itself. It's really um, important now, I think. So uh, check it out. That's all the light we cannot see. That sounds really good. I had started that book and I didn't finish it. So I'll have to pick it back up again. Um, when I need a new book to read. Thanks for sharing about that. I'm going to share about a podcast I've been listening to because when we started this podcast, we were looking to see who else was doing something similar, Mm -hmm. who was talking about gender and the church. And a podcast reached out to me on Twitter called Faith Disrupted that has sort of a similar vibe to Kindred's. Um, It's three women in Australia who are talking about gender issues in the church They've done some episodes on things like working motherhood, domestic violence in the church, extroversion in the church, uh, and of course, dating, because everyone's got to talk about that. (laughs) So you should check them out. And again, this is the Faith Disrupted podcast. We'll link to it in the show notes. Awesome. I haven't listened to them yet, but I'm going to have to now. Also, they have Australian accents, which who doesn't love that? (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) So Katie, you are up this week for... um, kindreds of the moment. Yeah. So if you're listening to this at a time way past when we're recording this, um, we're in the aftermath of both Hurricane Harvey and Irma right now. And um, when I saw all of the flooding that had happened in Houston, I was looking for ways to donate resources to help those who'd been displaced by the the massive destructive flooding there. And I came across uh, an organization called the Texas Diaper Bank. Uh, We have a diaper bank here in North Carolina too. So I knew that they were going to do good work Um, And I donated to them before really looking them up extensively, but I found out that they were established in 1997 by 10 United Methodist churches, which is kind of cool. I didn't know they had a faith connection. Um, And they serve over 33,000 people every year through their programs. And I imagine with the flooding this year, it will probably be much, much higher number than that. Mm-hmm. They collect and distribute diapers, of course, um, but also incontinence products, feminine hygiene products, and other essentials to families throughout the state, including in terms of in times of emergency and crisis like right now. I was able to send boxes of diapers and tampons and stuff like that directly to their office for distribution. 
So if you want to help the Texas Diaper Bank, you can visit their website, texasdiaperbank.org, to find out how to donate. That's awesome. Thank you so much for lifting that up, um, and especially for pointing out that, that it's, a, it's a, even a faith-based um, organization. That's really cool. And those are some really needed and often overlooked um, things that, that families need. So that is it for today. Uh, join us next time when we'll be talking about what it means to be white. Oh, yeah. Don't be afraid, y'all. We can do this thing. Yeah, come back. <laughs> Talk to you then. <laughs> Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 